Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would hold us fast, even as we have just sung those words. For Lord, we too, in our hearts, our old hearts, have the spirit of rebels that seek to run from you. Oh Lord, we ask that you would hold us fast because, Father, even though we believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, we are weak in this flesh. We need your Spirit to work. We ask that you would hold us fast, Father, because you have given us a task to perform. And, Lord, we are powerless to accomplish it if you do not go before us and with us. Oh Lord, be with us as a church family as we continue to look through this book of Jonah. I pray that your word would powerfully work in our lives, that, Lord, you might be praised and that we might better know your joy. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us begin by considering the bigger story. The God who created the whole earth, which is full of many good things along with a whole host of sinners, chose one man from among men to father a precious people. And he gave that one man a very great promise in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where he said to that man, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through this one man, a new blessed people would be formed from whom God would one day bring a glorious blessing to all the families of the earth. And when it says families, it means all of the many ethnicities within all of the many nation states of this world. So with this promise, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through this one man, Abraham, and his descendants known as Israel, ultimately by way of a Messiah who would one day spring forth from the tribe of Judah. Because of this promise, God proceeded to guide his people, the people of Israel. He protected them in their slavery, and he delivered them mightily from their oppressors. And he gave them his righteous law, that they might know him and follow him as their God. But in that law, God declared to them the kind of people he wanted them to be, so that the other peoples around them would see the greatness of the God of heaven. In the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, God commands Israel, saying, Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? And even beyond this, the people of Israel were to joyfully tell the nations around them of the wonderful works of the one true God. 
In Psalm chapter 9, verse 11, it says, Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. So, through Israel, all the families of the earth were to hear about the wonderful God of heaven. But you perhaps know how the story went. Israel was not faithful to God. They did not worship him alone. They did not obey his law, and they did not testify to him before the families of the earth. And at this we come to the book of Jonah, the prophet Jonah, the prophet of Israel who was called by God to go to the Ninevites that they might hear of his righteous judgment and perhaps Repent before the Lord who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But Jonah did not obey. Instead of going east to a desperate people, he went west, seeking the uttermost parts of the earth, so that he might be free of God and God's compassion for the nations. However, through this passage today, we will see that God's merciful plans cannot be curbed. That even though, even through a rebellion motivated by xenophobia and nationalism, even through a heart marked by short-sightedness and hatred, God can still show his mercy to the peoples of the earth. That the Lord God can save Gentiles, with providential irony through the very man who fled from his Gentile mission. So let us walk through this passage together. In verses 3 and 4, the Lord responded to his fleeing prophet. In verse 3 it says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Jonah did the very opposite of what he was commanded. In verse 2, God's command to Jonah was, Arise, go to Nineveh. But in verse 3, Jonah rose, that's the same word as in verse 2, and he fled to Tarshish. In verse 2, God commanded Jonah to head eastward to the land of Assyria, Israel's enemy. But in verse 3, Jonah went westward, first to Joppa on the Mediterranean coast, and then aboard a ship to the distant seaport of Tarshish. God's command was clear, and so were his intentions. He wanted the people of Nineveh to hear his word and either repent or face his righteous judgment. And he asked his previously useful prophet to go to them and herald his message. But Jonah resisted the clear call of the Lord. God said, go, and Jonah said, no. Jonah sought freedom from the presence of the Lord. That's what verse 3 tells us. And his final destination seemed to him as the most likely place to be free of God's direction and care. Tarshish was almost certainly a seaport on the southwest coastline of the Iberian Peninsula, an area we know today as Spain. 
It was a wealthy city that sent its gold and other precious goods to all buyers around the Mediterranean coast. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 10, the wise King Solomon had a fleet of ships of Tarshish, which would bring him gold and silver and ivory and apes and even peacocks once every three years. Now, the distance from Joppa, a seaport in Israel, to Tarshish in modern-day Spain, a distance of about 2,000 miles as the crow flies, might not actually seem all that great to us. After all, Magellan circumnavigated the entire globe back in the 16th century, and we can now hop on an airplane and fly that distance in just a matter of a few hours. But in the 8th century BC, Tarshish was the furthest point that a guy like Jonah could even imagine. To him, Tarshish was the end of the earth. It was the very end of the map. It was the furthest place from God's call that Jonah could think of. So Jonah went down to Joppa, found a ship heading to Tarshish, paid his fare, and went down into the ship to head away from the presence of the Lord. But Jonah was resisting his own theology. He knew he could not run from God. Like all Jews, he was acquainted with the doctrine that God is everywhere. As King David himself, preceded, who preceded Jonah in history, wrote in Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I free, flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Now perhaps Jonah hoped that the Lord would simply leave him alone and let him live out his days in exile from his people. You see, Jonah would rather be away from his good God and his people than let an enemy people into the goodness of God. His hatred was deep. But in verse 4, the Lord responded with divine power because he would not give up on his prophet. And isn't that just like our God? to continue to pursue his beloved little sheep rather than let him be destroyed out in the wild away from the flock. Note the word hurled in verse 4 as we're going to see it three more times in this passage. What God in his perfect wisdom elected to do was to wait for Jonah to be out on the ship and then he hurled a great wind upon the sea. It's worth mentioning that the mariners on the ship had, without question, experienced some terrible storms in their day. But this kind of wind was evidently different, with gusts like they had never witnessed, which made them more terrified than they had perhaps ever been. This was a truly magnificent and awful tempest, brought on here by the sovereign Lord God, and it is evidence that he had not surrendered his stubborn prophet to oblivion. You see, the storm was so great that the ship was about to break up. And the Lord, the Lord used this great danger to do what only he can do. In verses 5 through 10, the mariners reacted with tremendous fear. Verse 5, then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. 
And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and what people of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. This terrible storm made some undoubtedly tough sailors quake aboard the ship. Three times we are told that these men were afraid. Once in verse 5, again with great emphasis in verse 10, and then with the same great emphasis, but directed quite differently in verse 16. You see, the writer is wanting to show a contrast here between the great fear they experienced over the storm and the holy fear that they would have when it was over. Fear made them not only hurl their cargo to lighten the load, but it made them cry out to their gods. These were mariners aboard a ship bound for Tarshish, and they were therefore from the nations, the Gentiles, the peoples of the earth who worshipped idols. We don't know how serious these men were in their normal practice of idol worship, but we can certainly imagine how serious they were in their prayers as their boat was about to sink and they were about to drown. These were the precise people whom King David referred to when he wrote in the spirit to Israel in Psalm 9, verse 11, tell among the peoples his deeds. These were the people who needed to know of the one true God. And yet here they cried out to their mute and lifeless idols. As for Jonah, the one man on the ship who knew the only God who could save, we don't find him in repentant prayer, but we do find him asleep. The writer always has Jonah going downward in this chapter. He went down to Joppa, in verse 2 it says, where he then went down into the ship. And here in verse 5, he had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had fallen asleep. He just keeps sinking down. And two things are noteworthy here. First of all, Jonah was sleeping. How? I do not know. He must have had a far better stomach than most, that's for sure. But second, notice how he has gone down into the ship and away from the rest of the crew. One gets the sense, I think, from the writer that Jonah is trying to keep his distance from the pagans who were up above. Run from God, yes, but associate with unclean Gentiles? Never. The exchange between these mariners and Jonah is quite remarkable. In verse 6, their captain found Jonah and, astonished that he could actually be sleeping, begged Jonah to call out to his God. It seems these mariners didn't have a lot of confidence that their own gods would be merciful towards them or even that their own gods could save them if they wanted to. But they are pulling out all the stops here. And the captain tells Jonah in verse 6 to arise, which is the same word as in verse 2 and in verse 3. Arise and to call out to his God. 
Oh, how bitter those words must have sounded to Jonah. Waking up from his slumber, he heard the same word that God used at his calling. Arise! And now they are pleading with him to pray to the very God from whom he was fleeing. And nothing tells us here that he ever did. So the sailors cast lots in verse 7 to see which man had brought this great evil upon them. Casting lots was an ancient way of making decisions or seeking to determine the will of God. It used chance to make decisions. Perhaps this meant that they put each man's name on a stick and then had someone draw one stick from a stack in order to identify the blameworthy man. And these men believed that one of them must be responsible for this terrible tempest because they saw a clear causality between angering the gods and the difficulties of life. Tim Keller, by way of contrast, writes that the Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of sin, but it does teach that every sin will bring you into difficulty. Well, these men were wrong to think that every challenge was the direct result of someone's misstep, but in this case, they were right on. Jonah's sin brought a great difficulty to him and to these mariners. And because God is perfect in his providence, that lot fell upon Jonah. In verses 8 to 9, it gets really interesting. The mariners wanted Jonah to tell them who was responsible for this terrible storm, what his occupation was, where he came from, what his country was, and who his people were. They wanted as much information as they could get to determine whether or not this tempest was Jonah's fault. And the order of Jonah's response is, I think, rather telling. Notice in verse 9, he doesn't begin by answering their first question, which was, what is your occupation? But instead, he jumps right to his ethnicity. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. The second part of his answer, telling them that he feared the Lord, who was the God of heaven and who made both the sea and the dry land, is no doubt what would actually send shivers down their spines. But it's the first part of his answer that perhaps tells us something significant about Jonah. The man who fled from his duty to Gentiles because he was a Hebrew and who perhaps stayed down in the belly of the ship away from the Gentiles because he was a Hebrew, now tells them from the very beginning, I am a Hebrew. It seems that Jonah's order of priorities is a bit skewed. Rather than fearing the Lord first as part of God's people, he saw himself first and foremost as a Hebrew. Jonah's first identity was not as a follower of the one true God. It was as a member of the Jewish race who were separate from others. Well, this news, this news made these men, of course, exceedingly afraid in verse 10. In the original language, the word for afraid is doubled up in a grammatical way that adds a special emphasis. They were not merely afraid, as one might normally be afraid, but at hearing who was behind their plight, they were exceedingly afraid. They were terrified. They learned from Jonah that he was fleeing from the Lord, who, as Jonah declared, made everything, including the sea. 
How could they ever stand before such a powerful God? And who could possibly deliver them from the Lord's great and terrible wrath? In verses 11 through 15, the mariners relented to preserve their lives. Verse 11 says, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. They learned from Jonah what needed to be done to quiet the storm. The tempest was only getting worse. And they would need to act very quick if anything was to be done. So they asked Jonah what they should do. And he told them, Pick me up and hurl me. Once again, that's the same word as in verse 4 and in verse 5 and in verse 15. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. We don't know how Jonah knew that this action would calm the sea. Perhaps he was so certain that this storm was the hand of his God that he made what was to him an obvious assumption. And we also don't know what motivated him in telling them to do this. Was this out of some sense of mercy for these men, as some suppose? Or was this Jonah completely giving up on life, as he will do again in chapter 4, when he encounters God's mercy to the nations? But these men, showing the common grace of God, actually proved better characters than the prophet Jonah himself. For they were committed to trying anything in order to avoid taking his life. In verse 13, they rowed hard to get back to the land, but to no avail. God had caused the storm to be too strong. So finally, they relented, and for the first time, they prayed to the God who could actually hear them. In verse 14, they called out to the Lord. In your translation, it undoubtedly says capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the special covenant name of God. It's the word that Jonah used, and now they employ it. They called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Notice, they looked to God using his covenant name, the Lord, just as Jonah had named him in verse 9, and they asked the Lord for two mercies. Number one, that they would not perish for Jonah's life, probably meaning that they would not die because of the decisions that Jonah made in life. And number two, that the Lord would not lay Jonah's innocent blood upon them, likely meaning that God would not hold them guilty for what they were about to do. But when they prayed at the end of verse 14, they did something extraordinary. At the end of their prayer, they say, For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. My friends, understand, that is some knowledgeable praying there. 
In fact, it resembles several writings of the Old Testament scriptures, such as when the psalmist wrote in Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. These men evidently grasped something that all the Jews were expected to grasp and something that Jonah definitely should have grasped, that God acts and works according to his own sovereign good pleasure. And it is because they understood the sovereign freedom of God that they asked him to be merciful. A God who had that control, that much power, is the only God who could save them. And they pled to him alone here for mercy. And finally, after they had prayed, they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And then the tempest passed. In verse 16, the mariners expressed a new kind of fear in the Lord. Verse 16 says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. We've seen them afraid throughout this narrative. In verse 5, they were afraid, and they called out to the gods who could never save and who would never show mercy. In verse 10, they were exceedingly afraid because of who Jonah feared. And now in verse 16, we find them having a better fear. With the same language of emphasis as in verse 10, they now feared the Lord exceedingly. They went from sheer terror over their dreadful circumstances to awesome fear of the sovereign Lord. This was a new kind of fear, not one that quaked over judgment, but one in awe over deliverance. This was the kind of fear that included deep-seated respect and reverence for God, but with incredible gratitude and service as a result. Their actions after they left the ship demonstrate this. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to him. You see, these men became God-fearing men. They became men of faith who believed in the true God who acts according to his righteous good pleasure and their lives were changed as a result of God's salvation to them. My friends, do you see it yet? Jonah ran from God to prevent the conversion of the Gentiles, but as he ran, God used him to bring about the conversion of the Gentiles. God's merciful plan cannot be curbed. As I chewed over this passage this week, I asked a question. Why didn't God get a hold of Jonah on his flight across Israel to Joppa? Or why didn't God get a hold of Jonah when he first attempted to board the ship to Tarshish? Or why didn't God wait until after Jonah had already arrived in Tarshish? In other words, why did God act in the way that he acted in the very moment that he acted? And I would suggest to you at least two reasons. Number one, to show his unbridled compassion to some desperate sinners. So that these men who worshipped idols out in a boat spending most of their lives on a ship on the sea, would have the name of the Lord presented to them and would be able to turn towards him, recognizing his sovereign, saving hand. 
And then I think about my life and all the circumstances that God has used to bring me to saving faith. And oh, am I glad that he did it in just the right place, in just the right time, through just the right people, working in my heart in just the right way so that I can be saved. It's the first reason, I think. Second reason is to point to the unbridled compassion of his son, Jesus, who, like Jonah, was in the depths for three days and nights. We're going to talk more about that purpose next week. From this passage, let me make three points. Number one, we cannot outrun the ever-present God. We cannot outrun the ever-present God. God is everywhere and always present. There is nowhere we can turn from his gaze, and there is nowhere to avoid his sovereign power and will. He performs his righteous pleasure at all times and in every place. And this is both a warning and a joy. It's a warning because we are guilty. He has seen our guilt, and we cannot outrun his weighty, righteous judgment. He sees the things you do in secret that you want no one else to know. He sees the things from your past. He even sees the things you're going to do against him in the future. He sees when you did it in a different place. He sees when you do it right where you are. No matter where you are, what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. What happens in Newport Ritchie doesn't stay in Newport Ritchie. God, the glorious sovereign God, he sees it all. And that is terribly fearful because he knows my heart. But it is also a joy if we know him through Jesus. For then we have the compassionate God watching over us, not like a hawk which seeks to devour us, but like a father who seeks to guide us, encourage us, and provide for us. He watches over us with a tenderness and care. His steadfast love endures for us forever. The joy, that joy of his ever-present glory is the attitude of the psalmist when he again says in Psalm 139, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Even if we're to end up in Tarshish, his right hand will lead us and hold us fast. Friend, if you are running from God, stop. Turn toward Jesus and enjoy his merciful gaze. He has provided what you needed through the cross for you to be forgiven. He has accomplished in his resurrection for you to not only be saved, but for you to have life with God eternal. Stop your running. Turn towards the Lord and embrace the Son in faith. Second point I want to make. We cannot impede God's compassion for sinners. We cannot impede God's compassion for sinners. 
We can certainly sin and choose to not take his message to the Ninevites of our day. How often have I myself demonstrated my keen ability in that regard? Paul said, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But to be honest, my feet aren't always so pretty. Fear, fear, cowardice, laziness, apathy, selfishness, lovelessness. All too often, my feet are soiled by such things. But that doesn't put a halt to God's compassionate expansion, mainly because it doesn't ultimately depend upon me. Do you recall what Jesus said in his words to Peter in Matthew 16, verse 18? I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is Jesus who builds his church. He takes the message that Peter and the others would convey to a lost world, and he builds his church. And I can't get in the way of that, nor can you. Nothing impedes his compassion for sinners. And you know what? It's Jesus who gives me and my inglorious feet a powerful spirit who enables me through his word to take steps of faith as I, I learn to love and learn to overcome my fears and learn to put the salvation of other people first. Amen. Yes, and it's the same for you, Christian. Jesus will build his church and he's going to do it by transforming you as he builds it. Third point. We must prioritize mission over tribe. We must prioritize mission over tribe. We're going to talk more about this in a couple of weeks, but for now, let me say this. In contrast with Jonah, who identified as a Hebrew first and a God-fearer second, who loved the special place of his people Israel over the eternal purpose of the God of Israel, we must not prioritize tribe over mission. Instead, we must prioritize mission over tribe. My dear friends, it is good to have a fondness, even a love for one's homeland. And to an extent, I think it is good to enjoy your people and to value your tribe. But it is a terrible thing when that fondness and that delight supersedes God's church as it expands across this nation and over this whole globe. Oh, Riverside, let us not be an American church. Let us be the faithful church of God with America as its first mission field. And with the high aim to take the gospel much, much, much further. Let us see the worldwide expansion of the gospel, an expansion that must reach to every language and tribe as our primary aim, our lifelong goal, and our most fervent mission. And let us do this with the full confidence that Jesus Christ, our Savior and King, will build his church. Let's pray. 
Lord God, we need you. We need you to help us. For we are fearful. We doubt. We even, Lord, are tempted to doubt you. Lord, we need you to secure us in your character. And we need you to strengthen us in your spirit. That as we go, we will not only be bold, but we will also see a path made before us whereby people are saved and people become a part of your kingdom ministry. Lord, we yearn for mariners to be saved as we share with them the God who does all that he pleases, that they would see the holiness of God and then experience his personal salvation for them and then become servants of the high king of heaven. Oh Lord, make us faithful to those around us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.